Welcome to episode 25 of Beyond the Desk, a podcast of West Dallas Public Library. I'm Sarah, and today I'm talking with Liam Callanan, a local author of novels including The Cloud Atlas, All Saints, Paris by the Book, and his latest, When in Rome. It's a charming story about a woman who must choose between two second chances, either to save a struggling convent or to commit to her old flame. We also talk about Wisconsin State Fair cream puffs and a somewhat similar treat to enjoy when in Rome. I wondered if maybe we could start out for listeners who haven't read when in Rome yet, which is your fifth book of fiction, yes. right? Could you tell people a little bit about what it's about? Sure. When in Rome is about a woman who's named Claire. She's in her 50s and she has specialized for a long time a career she happened into of selling old religious properties, decommissioned churches and convents. And some nuns in Rome hear about her and think she might be just the person who could help them sell their old convent. So they send over a request. She goes to Rome to give them a hand and wind up falling in love with the building, the city, and most intriguingly, the life. And she thinks, maybe I should take vows and join them and help them stay open. And just then her old college flame shows up. Complications ensue. (laughs) That's a good description. Thank you. I thought it was really interesting that you focused on this potential choice of choosing a religious life. Mm -hmm. I think it's a little unusual to see that come up in fiction. Could you tell me a little bit about how you came up with that concept and how it was received by, say, your first readers and your editor and agent? It is an unusual thing to take up, especially with a serious bent to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, the novel has plenty of fun moments too, Mm -hmm. but it takes very seriously this notion that she is considering joining the convent. And I think that I was surprised by some of my earliest readers who were saying, make that even more serious, Mm -hmm. or at least go and give that some real depth of character and exploration. And that really encouraged me. I mean, in many ways, this is, it's not exclusively religious. People are looking at this as a person at midlife trying to figure out what they should have done before and what they might do with the rest of their life. I think that appeals to a lot of people, Mm -hmm. uh, religious or not. And the notion of spiritual aspect, kind of a belief in a higher power, I think. But in this book, it's very explicit religious because that was the journey that she was on and also it made sense to me I had an uncle many many years ago uh, or I'm not even sure he was an uncle or cousin but he joined the Trappist monastery in Kentucky the same one where Thomas Merton was and I was always fascinated by that choice because they observed a vow of silence and I went down a couple times to see him with the family he was allowed visitors once a year and I thought it was just so mysterious and kind of fascinating that someone would give up the whole world to devote themselves to prayer and work. As a novelist I'm always interested in characters who do the thing that isn't normal, the mm-hmm. thing that goes against the grain, goes against the current because those are the most interesting characters and I think that's what drew me to this story. That and of course the fact that it's Rome. Rome steals the show on almost every page. Absolutely. I felt like in some ways Claire was choosing to write, for lack of a better word, one of her two regrets which was not joining the Clementines Mm -hmm. and then not pursuing a relationship with Marcus. And I thought you did a really good job of making both of these choices very compelling. As a reader, I found myself sometimes thinking, oh, I hope she chooses to join the sisters. And sometimes I thought, well, she really loves Marcus. She should be with him. I wondered if you knew before you got to the end how it was going to end. That's a really great question. As a rule, I never know how my books are going to end. Mm -hmm. I always sit down and write the first page of a book thinking that it's going to be the first page forever. But then by the time I get to the end of the book, 
I realize that the book has become almost inevitably something else. Mm -hmm. There's a quote, I think it's by William Stafford or E.L. Doctorow, that writing is like driving at night. You can only see as far as your headlights, but that's far enough. Mm -hmm. And I always kind of am surprised when I turn off the car and get out and see like, oh, this is where the book ended up. In the case of this book, first of all, I'm so excited that you were rooting for both endings Mm -hmm. because I was too. I left that door open as long as I could. Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, there are different drafts of this book with different endings. Okay. And so the one that we came up with when I say we, it was me, but I also kind of feel like I was collaborating with the characters to kind of figure out what they wanted. But in the end, this seemed to be the ending. But I'm so glad that it kind of kept you on tenderhooks. And I think it, it comes very much from my own indecision as an author as to which way it would go. But then I realized that's part of what was driving the story. Can you talk a little bit more about your writing process then? You mentioned that you had different drafts. Were they complete drafts that you went through? Or how, how does that work? My process is different for every book. Some books take Mm -hmm. more drafts than others. This book took an enormous amount of drafts and I think like all my books it's either described as like it took me 12 months to write or more like 12 years and Mm -hmm. the story for this book really did come upon me years and years ago. It may have even been the first story I tried to write just because I'm fascinated by monasteries and convents as kind of places of kind of mystery and we just don't see over those walls enough. But I would try it, and I abandoned an early draft, and then I had a full draft maybe six or seven years ago of a similar story, but very different. Mm-hmm. It was set in Virginia. Okay. Uh, it was set with different characters, and I wound up keeping, I think, a sentence or two of that early draft, and then transported the whole thing to Rome. And then when it got to Rome, it really peaked into color, and I was like, oh, this is the story. Mm-hmm. So I have to be ready to throw away almost everything I write, which is painful, One of the most valuable things a professor once told me is that there's no such thing as wasted work, Mm -hmm. which I cling to that belief, especially on days when I'm throwing away an awful lot. And then even when I got to this version of the book, I must have rewritten it two or three times, start to finish, completely different drafts each time, which was exhausting. I probably put more work into this book than my previous books, Mm -hmm. uh, just in terms of time sitting at the table. Mm -hmm. Although in Milwaukee Magazine, there's a little article about me and it says I composed the book at a typewriter. I did not. I composed it at a computer, but it felt like I was typing it. I could have been at a typewriter because that would have been even slower. But I think my process is to put a lot of clay on the wheel, and then spend even more time taking it off. So I'm just trying to picture how this works. So if you have these separate drafts, how do you end up synthesizing them into the final one? That's a great question. What I do is when I realize I need a whole new draft, I start over on page one, mm-hmm. and I retype the thing, which is just exhausting, but it makes for a better whole cloth renovation. Okay. It comes out a little bit more seamlessly when I do that. But I usually kind of read through the previous draft, the draft that isn't working, mm-hmm. and I step back from it a little bit, and I look to see what parts are slow. Sometimes I do what I call take an x-ray of the book, and I do this. I think it might be also a valuable way of procrastinating, but I get an <laughs> Excel spreadsheet out, uh-huh. and I go through the draft, and I count how many pages are in each scene, mm-hmm. and then I label each scene, and I put down what happens in the scene and what characters are in the scene. And then once I've done that for the whole book, I can see where the flabby parts are. Like, this scene is 20 pages. Mm -hmm. Or I can see this character I thought was so important hasn't appeared for 70 pages. I either need to put them back in, Mm -hmm. or I need to take them out entirely. And then once I have that kind of x-ray, then I can go back and say, okay, this is what needs to be done. And then once I've done that, on successive passes, I can just go back into edit mode 
and just cut and add a little bit. But I think of it often as like those pachinko machines where the ball falls down, but there's fewer choices the closer you get to the bottom. Okay. And I feel like when you sit down to write, the most exhausting thing, but also the most freeing thing is that you can do anything with those first pages. Mm -hmm. But then each decision you make in the book forecloses other decisions. Mm -hmm. And that's always the challenge of getting to that place at the end and hoping that that was the right place you meant to go to. Thank you for sharing that. You mentioned that this book started off as a story. How often do you go back to some of your work that you have maybe set aside for a while? I think like a lot of writers, I keep a bullpen of stories or story fragments or sentences in some cases or paragraphs Mm -hmm. that I either abandoned or started and then I kind of go and check on them and see like which are useful to put a little water and sunlight on and see what will happen. Okay. Beyond that, I'd never revisit previous work, just it's, Mm -hmm. it's too painful. Like once it's done, it's just done. Sure. I seem to be quoting a lot of writers today. There's another writer, I think his name is George Garrett. He taught in Virginia for many years. He said, it's only when you finish a book you realize the book you could have written. <laughs> and I always have that feeling when I finish a book, like, oh, there was this perfect book looming over the horizon. That's what I was aiming for, but I landed here. When I finish a book, I'm always satisfied with the product for the uh-huh. most part. But the challenge of getting to that perfect place, yeah, I haven't found it yet. Okay. So I read Paris by the book before I read One in Rome, and I noticed some similarities. You kind of already mentioned that Claire is a middle-aged woman looking for a new start, the next phase of her life. I think it's spurred by the reunion Mm -hmm. in part. Yes. And then it's a different situation in Paris by the book, but also Leah is having a fresh start in Mm -hmm. Paris, and they're both European cities. And they're both women. And you mentioned that your uncle was a Mm. monk. Did you ever think about telling these stories or one of the stories from a man's point of view? Or why did you choose to write from a woman's point of view? I'm not sure. This is the third novel I've done from the woman's point of view. Uh And my first book was from a man's point of view. And I wouldn't be surprised if my next book was from a man's point of view. Uh But I follow the story wherever it comes. Okay. And this was the story that came to me this time. Uh With When in Rome, it was the story of my cousin or uncle who was... I say that because it's a kind of a murky genealogy, so I'm not exactly sure how we're related. But that was one element of it. But another element of it was years ago on a trip to Rome, I was staying in this old hotel that when I checked in, Mm -hmm. there was a woman who walked across the lobby and habit. And I asked the concierge at the desk, I said, so are there nuns nearby? And she said, oh, this is their building. They've sold off a couple wings of it, but they held on to one on their own and they live there in cloister, but every now and then they come out. And I said, so this whole place is a convent? And she said, yes, but only one part of it still operates as a convent. And so that fascinated me, Mm -hmm. trying to keep a community afloat and what you would have to do for that spiritually, financially, And that was just another seed of it. And I think seeing that situation in Rome, specifically with nuns in a convent, that's what kind of pushed me towards the stories. But yeah, I just follow the voice when it comes. Okay. Uh, My first book is narrated by a 79-year-old celibate priest, missionary, World War II veteran, Mm -hmm. which I'm also not. Uh, (laughs) So I'm I'm never exactly sure. When the book comes, it comes. Okay. So I really liked the supporting characters in 
when in Rome, especially the sisters. I felt like Felicity, Therese, Georgia, and even Mother St. Luke, who Claire doesn't meet firsthand. She only mm. hears about secondhand. They're all very real and distinct and human. I kind of was curious, did you go to a Catholic school or were you around sisters? I did go to a Catholic high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to a Jesuit high school, but I didn't have much exposure to women religious there. Okay. Because it was run by Jesuit priests, so mm-hmm. there wasn't much of it. But as I started on this journey, I realized that I need to learn a lot more about women religious nuns mm-hmm. and sisters. And so I interviewed quite a few for this book. So. Mm-hmm. And in all different sorts of situations, uh, nuns who lived in the community outside a convent, women who lived in cloistered communities and convents, women who wore a habit, women who did not wear a habit. And then towards the kind of middle to the end of the process, I made the acquaintance of a sister in Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, who's one of the Franciscan sisters, Sister Julia Walsh, and she was a great guide throughout the process of helping me figure out exactly what a woman religious might be interested in talking about with someone who's a civilian or a layperson, how they feel about community, how they might feel about Rome itself. Mm-hmm. And so I took a lot of that. I also talked to an Episcopal priest who was a woman, and I talked to a variety of men who were religious too, priests and a bishop and some brothers. And from all of them, I got this notion of kind of what it means to have a calling and a vocation. Mm-hmm. And then what it's like to live in these communities. That was one of the consistent answers that came when I was asking why they did this. And they had a variety of religious answers and you know that they were called, they had a special relationship with God, or they felt called to one. But they also all talked about the nature of community, about living in mm-hmm. chosen families. And I thought that was really resonant. And I feel like the women, I'm so glad, by the way, that you found those women compelling, because I found them fascinating. Mm-hmm. And every day they said something new that surprised me. One of them goes out for runs all the time. The other one has the foodie tour of Rome. Mother St. Luke has this pastime. I think they call her Sister La Dolce Vita at some point because she was the toast of the town back in 50s Rome. And so each of them, I think, struggles with the life in really kind of sincere ways. Mm-hmm. And that was something my editor also encouraged me to think about. The prioress or the head of the community in Rome is a woman who was on Wall Street for many years mm-hmm. uh, as a layperson and then just walked away from it. And I was really fascinated by that. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what does it take to do that? For a while, she was the heart of the book, and then I realized there were other people who were coming into it in different ways. Mm-hmm. But um, it's funny, I want to meet them. I mm-hmm. want to like go to Rome now and meet them, and I have to keep reminding myself, like, oh, right, they're just fictional. I made them up. <laughs> but every now and then I think, like, oh, I'm going to go see them next month and I'll go have a drink and we'll talk. And maybe someday, maybe if they make the movie, I'll get to hang out with the actors. That would be fun. They would be. Monica was a really interesting character. She's kind of bossy, mm-hmm. but she seems to have Claire's best interests at heart. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you developed that character. She's a piece of work. I mm-hmm. mean, she really is a scene stealer in a lot of the book. And I think because Claire, in some ways, needs some opposition in her life, and Monica's like that sort of best friend who does always have your best interest at heart, but sometimes presumes too much mm-hmm. and wants to run things for you. Mm-hmm. And Claire, for a long time, has allowed that to happen. And so part of the story of this book is kind of defining herself in middle age, not just in terms of herself, but her wider community and what Monica would do for that. But Monica really does have her best interest at heart, although it's what she thinks are her best interests. It's not always what Claire might think is her best interest. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, I've had friends in my own life who have been Monica's at different okay. times, and it's been, <laughs> it's been helpful. There's a lot of Easter eggs in this book buried there for all the different friends and family that I've given cameo roles to. 
So here's to all the Monicas in the world. <laughs> I did feel like she was a strong character. Like she could have her own book. She's oh, okay. Well, yeah. I will tell my, Monica would be really pleased about that. <laughs> I'll have to tell her to see if she can show up in the next book. And each one of my books, there's always a reference to the book that came before. Mm-hmm. Impressed by the book, I think there's a reference to the priest from the Cloud Atlas. Okay. Uh, in I don't know if I should give this away, but why not? In the early pages of When in Rome, there's a reference to the Italian edition of Paris by the Book. Okay. Uh, so there's a title that's, I think, thrown on the ground, actually. There's going to be an Italian edition of When in Rome, too, so I'm really excited to see how that comes out. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. And I'm not sure what they're going to call it, because I'm not sure they're going to call it Quando a Roma. <laughs> um, but uh, we'll see. I did want to ask you about Claire's specialization because she becomes a realtor it sounds like it's something that Monica kind of pushed her toward because they work together and then Claire specializes in helping these churches and religious groups sell their properties how did that come about did you find that in your research or did you just kind of dream it up I mean I think part of it came from visiting that hotel in Rome Mm -hmm. uh, where I saw the women the nuns who were still kind of coexisting with the parts of so that was part of it and then honestly living in Milwaukee and we live in the city and so and my days as I drive around, I end up driving, walking past a number of religious buildings which have been taken over by new congregations or have become apartments or things like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just struck me as I feel like we're in an age, at least where Milwaukee is, like a hundred years after maybe those churches had their first flourishing, they're now coming into new lives mm-hmm. in new ways. And it seems to be happening all around. And so it seemed like for one thing, it would be a fruitful business for Claire. Mm-hmm. She would never go for lack of opportunity. And also just seems fascinating to me because churches aren't just buildings, but they're places of real community. Mm-hmm. And they are places which, by definition, were spiritually important or sacred to a certain group of people. And what does it mean when those people are gone? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what makes a church? Is it the people or the building? Well, it's the people, but the building had some meaning to it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really kind of curious as to how successive generations read those buildings and read that experience. Yeah, and she seemed uniquely suited to, even though she wants a new start, she wants to do something different with her life. She seemed like because she had this interest in becoming a sister early on, she was able to understand where these people were coming from and how hard it could be for them to have to give up a place that was important to them, like these sisters in Rome, giving up their home. Absolutely. When you are in a place like that, especially the building in Rome that they're in is four or five hundred years old, four hundred years old, I think the book says. So in that case, it's not just your home, but it's your stewards of the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there's a trip into the archives at one point in the book, and you get a little glimpse of all those people who have come before in that ledger all the belongings that people left and so that is hard to leave because it's hard to be the person who locks the door for the last time and turns out the lights Mm -hmm. that's why it was fun in this book to turn the lights back on if only briefly Mm -hmm. you mentioned talking to different people who have chosen a religious life and I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about how you did the research for this book because you must have also spent some time in Rome or did some research on the setting as well. You mentioned you were there. Can you talk more about that aspect of the Sure, book? sure. I never had the privilege of living in Rome for mm-hmm. any extended stretch. We have a busy family back here in Milwaukee, and there's only so many times that my family say, like, sure, Dad, go off and spend uh, half a year in Rome. So I took several trips over the course of researching it. Mm-hmm. And during those trips, I did everything that tourists don't do. Mm-hmm. I basically 
basically once I had a draft of the book in place, I went around the city and did everything that my character does in the book. Okay. Which was really interesting because, for example, she's a runner player. Mm -hmm. And one night in the book, she goes and runs it in St. Peter's Square close to midnight. Mm -hmm. So there I was in Rome one night getting ready to go to sleep after kind of a long night out on the town. And I thought... Well, my character goes for a run at midnight in Rome, so I should do that. And I thought, is that really safe? And I thought, well, we're just going to have to hope that the god looking out over these characters is looking out over me, too. <laughs> so I laced up and I went for a run. I went over to St. Peter's Square, and I was actually able to do that with the kind benevolence of some policemen who really didn't seem to care too much about the fact that I was running laps. And so I did that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I went around the city. At one point, there's a scene set in a hospital mm -hmm. in Rome, and that's a real hospital. And I actually went to that hospital under the guise of needing a COVID test, which I kind of did to fly back home. But I wandered the hospital pretending to look for the COVID test, and so I got to scoop all that up there. So now I've definitely done the other things. I've been to the Sistine Chapel. I've been to mm -hmm. the Spanish Steps. I've been to the Trevi Fountain. But uh, what I really enjoyed on these trips was just seeing a Rome that a Roman might see. So I went mm -hmm. to the market, I went to food halls, I went to neighborhoods outside the city center where I got more of a sense of how Romans live their lives today. And whatever I did, I tried to spend as much time as possible outdoors. I never took the subway because the subway's underground and the best parts of Rome are up above. And then I just kind of scribbled everything down that I was seeing. Mm -hmm. But I tried to be as immersive. In nonfiction, there's that term participatory journalism. I think I was a participatory fictionist or author like that. That sounds right. Yeah, very cool. And then eating the food, I mean, that was hardly a difficult duty, but I've eaten all the food that's mentioned in the book, dutifully went around and ordered that. And I had people help me with that. I had a food consultant oh, interesting. Uh, on the book who helped me figure out what people would eat at different meals and if it was a nice meal and what would pair with it and what you definitely wouldn't eat. And there's a long scene set in a market hall in Rome that's fictional, but is put together with the help of this person. I definitely, I got a lot of Roman guides, a food consultant, a tour guide who kind of brought me around Rome and again, walked me around the places where I was, mm -hmm. uh, introduced me to some things I wouldn't have seen. That's interesting. So how did you connect with this food consultant? Did you, in doing your research there, find this person? Yes. Or, okay. I was listening to fellow podcasts, which I should do a shout out to The Bittersweet Life, uh -huh. uh, Tiffany and Katie, and Tiffany lives in Rome. And I was a faithful listener to the podcast because it's not exclusively set in Rome, but they frequently feature Roman topics, and they had a lot of nice audio from Rome, so it was a great way to kind of start my writing day would be to listen to them. And I knew that Tiffany did some tour guiding work, and so when I was going over to Rome on one of the trips, I reached out to her and asked for help. Mm -hmm. And then she connected me to the other guides. She okay. said, well, if you're interested in food, like this person does a food tour, and that person's Australian. I list them all in the back of the book. So basically, I just hired on the expertise of all these different folks to kind of help me see what it was like. And also the Minchilli, Sophia Minchilli, whose mother Elizabeth Minchilli runs a kind of culinary tour network okay. with her throughout Rome. So it was a very kind of 21st century novel. I mean, 20th century in the sense that I was still typing, but 21st century in that I was reaching out online to all these different experts and all these different places to kind of help me get connected. Yeah, that's really interesting. What about Paris by the book? Did you do something similar? For I did do something. I did do something similar. I didn't wind up with tour guides in Paris by the book, but I definitely interviewed a lot of Parisians mm -hmm. um, for the different aspects of the book. People who own bookstores in Paris. Paris by the Book is set in Paris, and it's set in a bookstore in the Marais. And so there was a particular bookstore that I was interested in. 
I talk with that bookstore owner. I talk with bookstore owners back here. There's a character in Paris by the Book who's black. I talk with some black Americans who lived in Paris to kind of get their experience of what it was like. I talked with all kinds of people who could help me fill in the different blanks. The main character in Paris by the Book has an obsession with a film and book called The Red Balloon. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely researched that and I went to the Cinémathèque Française, which is kind of the research library or center for French filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And I just love kind of following a thread to see where it leads. Mm -hmm. uh, and those threads in Paris led all over the city in some really fascinating historic ways. And some of the things I discovered kind of made more for the book because oh, I had no idea Ludwig Bemelmans, uh, the author of the Madeleine series, for example, had such a long past in Paris and such an adult past. He owned a bar there. He got in all kinds of trouble there. He lost his shirt in the bar. And the bar still exists today has changed hands many times. In fact, the last time I went there, I went in to ask them about Lilburg Bemelmans and owning the bar, and they looked mm -hmm. at me like I was crazy. They had no idea what I was talking about. Oh. So I took them outside the bar and showed them a plaque on their own building that had his name on it. I said, see, he's right here. And they're like, oh, what do you want for lunch? They were there not so, <laughs> not so interested in doing research. They just wanted me to buy some food and wine, which I did. If you turn over every stone, there's another story. And uh, that was definitely the case in Rome, and it was definitely the case in Paris by the book. And just to kind of keep pursuing those stories is always fascinating to me. So how do you mix the research with the writing? Because I imagine if you did a lot up front, you could get stuck and not actually do much writing. But there might be times when you're writing and you feel like you need to do more research. So how do you balance that? That's a great question. Research is another kind of productive procrastinatory activity. Like mm -hmm. you can always keep doing it and it can stop you from writing. If the plot is coming to me, then I'll just race ahead and keep up with the plot. But sometimes I'll stall out and usually it's because I don't know enough about the situation. Mm -hmm. And in that case, I always go back to research and see what finding out more about a situation can tell me. My second novel is called All Saints. and. There, whenever I stalled out in the writing process, I would just look up another saint's life and kind of see if that related to it. Mm -hmm. um, in my first book, The Cloud Atlas, which is set in World War II Alaska, and somewhat topically today with the Chinese balloons that have been coming over, yeah. <laughs> um, The Cloud Atlas is about Japanese balloons that came over in World War II. And that was a very research-driven novel because I had to find out where the balloons were coming from, where they landed in the United States, what was found in each one of them. And that story really did all result from some research because someone had documented those Japanese balloons and in one of them one crash site in Alaska there was just a cryptic note and the footnote in the book I was looking at or the text that said found in the wreckage was a postcard written by a boy to his father in Japanese and I thought what is a postcard doing in a war balloon in the middle of World War II and a novel came from there so I'm always like tapping around almost like a you know, geologists to see which stone's going to break open and what's it going to reveal inside. With each book, there's always that moment when I like discover, oh, there's more here than I thought. And that's always a wonderful thing. But then sometimes when the research outpaces you, I have to pick and choose. And it's so hard because there's all those things that you want to use, but you can't always cram them all in. Yeah, I think you did a really good job in both Paris by the Book and in One in Rome of including details that made you feel like you were there, but weren't overwhelmed by details because that does happen sometimes when you read something. It's like people are so excited about all of their research, they try to cram it all in. And it can be distracting or slow down the story. It's so hard. It's a real temptation. There's a fountain that my character has a particular obsession with in Rome, and there's no reason why anyone should have an obsession with this fountain, other than I'm very fascinated by it. And so I really wanted to write something that included this fountain, but the fountain is really not very special. But then 
as I researched it, I found out something very special about that fountain, or at least where it's set. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, that's going to have to go in the book. And so it does. So listeners, don't skip ahead, but towards the end of the book, you find out what's up with the fountain. <laughs> it sounds like you really enjoy the research process. I'm curious, because I know you teach at UW-Milwaukee, and you, I think, have been living here for a while, would you ever see yourself writing a book about Milwaukee? I know some of these characters have lived in Milwaukee, Mm -hmm. so there are references to Milwaukee, but would you set a book in Milwaukee? I don't know. I feel like it's so funny. I think that in some ways writing these books about people who are abroad and very much outsiders in the place that they're in Mm -hmm. might be a projection of the way I feel about Milwaukee sometimes. I lived here 18 years, but I'm very much a transplant. I grew up in Los Angeles, uh, and so I lived in Washington, D.C. for a long time. Mm -hmm. None of my family had ever lived in Milwaukee or Wisconsin for that matter. And so I've always felt here like I love it. We live on the east side. We really enjoy the life of the city. But I've always felt like people who've lived here, so many of them have lived here for generations. You know, mm-hmm. Their family Thanksgiving dinner takes them two blocks north and then two blocks south to go <laughs> to the other family. And so I wonder if I'm ready to write a book about Milwaukee. Or if I do, I might need more direction. I might need to move to, I don't know, Prague to write a book about Milwaukee. <laughs> I'm not sure. We'll see. Well, speaking of Prague or other European cities, I mean, you went to Paris, you went to Rome. Do you see yourself setting another book somewhere in Europe? I think so. Mm-hmm. We'll have to see. I'm an inveterate traveler, so mm-hmm. and I love the kind of stories that emerge in there. And so there's some more irons in the fire that are just in the very, very early kind of germinating phases but I'm watering them to see what happens. And uh, right now they are in Europe, but there's other places on the horizon too. So we'll just have to see, we'll just have to see what comes up. I'm kind of following my own balloons wherever they take me. Well, I'm looking forward to that because both of these books have made me want to go to Paris and to Rome. It's kind of like you get to this armchair traveling through the novels. Oh, thank you. I'm looking forward to wherever you take us next. So I was wondering, you talked about your research process. What about how you write. Do you have like a schedule or a favorite place that you write? I used to always write in coffee shops. Uh-huh. Uh, try, I still try and write every day. Mm-hmm. I sometimes fail miserably at that task, especially right now when I'm doing a lot of publicity and running around doing book tour things. But I have to remind myself it's okay just to write a sentence or reread a paragraph that can kind of count. Mm-hmm. Um, but I used to write in cafes because I loved what I thought of as the community enforcement. Like if someone saw me reading email or playing solitaire, they would think, oh, he's just slacking off, but if they saw me typing. (laughs) So it was something about just being in that environment. And then also, I never would want to get up out of my seat because I would be afraid of losing my laptop Uh or or my seat. And so that's also a great way to kind of stay chained to the desk. But then during the pandemic, that wasn't possible anymore. Mm -hmm. And so when in Rome, I finished at my own desk in my house, which is Mm -hmm. kind of like a little closet outside the bathroom. So not maybe the most ideal place, but it was like, I was like, oh, right, I have a desk here. Mm Mm-hmm. I can use it. And so that is mostly where I've done my writing now. Okay. And I don't have any necessary tricks to the trade. I seem to take off my shoes when I'm writing, but I think that's so I don't run away. Um, <laughs> that's interesting. I haven't heard that before. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure exactly why I do that. It's mm-hmm. just like all the less distraction. The challenge of writing at home right now is we have two cats, and the cats really don't like my writing process. They keep coming up and scratching me, coming over to play, and things Aww. like that. I can't even remember if I put a cat in any one of these books. I think there's always a cat cameo. That's right. There's a feral cat colony in Land and Rome, and I think there's a cat that crosses the street. In any case, <laughs> I have cats in my mind because they always come every morning. Usually, we just when I'm in the midst of a great idea, uh-huh. they have a better one. 
Those stinkers. <laughs> Are you at all familiar with Lee Bardugo's Alex Stern series? The first one was Ninth House and how yes. that came out. The reason I ask is because there are some scenes in one in Rome that take place on the Yale campus mm -hmm. and you went to Yale mm -hmm. and Lee Bardugo went to Yale and her series mm -hmm. is set at Yale and it deals with the secret societies mm -hmm. but in her books they practice magic mm -hmm. so I was curious if you could practice magic what kind of magic would you like to practice? Oh that's a really good question I haven't read the second book I have read the first mm -hmm. so if I could practice magic I've always wanted to fly would that be magic? Yeah I think okay. so and, I mean, if not fly, then teleportation. In other words, I would want to practice the kind of magic that would allow me to keep traveling. Okay, cool. <laughs> that makes sense. In your book, One in Rome, Sister Therese takes Claire for, is it Meritozzi? Merit yes. Um, and those are rolls filled with whipped cream, and Claire's reminded of cream puffs from the Wisconsin State Fair. Yes. So I wondered, with us being at West Dallas Public Library and the fair being not too far from here, if you could share what your favorite treat from the fair is. Oh, that's a great question. Well, I do like those cream puffs. Uh-huh. And I'm going to get in all sorts of trouble for saying this on the podcast, but you know what? It's true. The roast corn at the Wisconsin State Fair is better than the roast corn at the Iowa State Fair. Oh. And my wife's family's all from Iowa, so those are fighting words. <laughs> but the corn is much better here. So those the are corn my, is th good. Those are my two stops, the roast corn and the cream puffs. And the cream puffs really do resemble this dish that they get in Rome, although theirs are a little bit less sweet and a little bit less light. Okay. I don't know if their cows are as happy as the ones we have in Wisconsin. <laughs> what have you been reading? Are there any great books that you want to share? There's a book by Christopher Bayhaw called What Happened to Sophie Wilder, which I've been really interested in. It's been out for a few years. I really like that a lot. There's a book by a student who graduated not long ago from our program, a poet named Sue Cho, who mm -hmm. wrote a, a poetry collection called The Symmetry of Fish, which I like a lot, and another one of our poets, Elizabeth Hoover, whose book The Archive, a book of poetry, is also wonderful. I seem to be drawn to poetry, uh, even though I can't write a lick of it, mm -hmm. I like reading it because it's language in its most concentrated form, mm -hmm. and you can get a lot of it in a quick dose, so I love poetry like that. Well, thanks for those recommendations. I enjoy going to Rome to explore this book, and I hope people enjoy going back to Rome. I would also encourage everyone to go ahead and book a flight as soon as you can because they need the business mm -hmm. and it's a wonderful time to see Rome wherever you go. Well, thanks so much, Liam. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks so much. It's been a great trip to West Dallas. When in West Dallas, I'll have to be the next one. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Desk with Sarah and my guest, Liam Callanan. You can find the book titles we mentioned in the show notes. If you're in the Milwaukee area, Tuesday, March 14th, head to Boswell Books for Liam's One in Rome event at 6.30 p.m. We hope you'll join us next month on the podcast when Desiree and I talk about Lee Bardugo's Alex Stern series. That's all for this episode. See you next time.